Welcome to the Art of Faith podcast. I'm Joshua Kapczynski. We are continuing our series on who is Jordan Peterson. Again, I believe that he is an incredible voice for our time. Quite honestly, most likely um, what we would consider a prophet. Uh, that that term prophet is confusing and gets thrown around and, and in church life you know we we there's a thing called the fivefold ministry and we try to organize ministry in churches around uh, these five different categories of ministry which are pastor teacher prophet evangelist uh, missing one but you get the idea uh, healer I think is one of them and and it's kind of a weird topic to think that that we could have a prophet inside of the church because whenever we think about a prophet our mind goes to Moses and incidentally I'm doing a series on Moses right now or or, or our mind will go to Elijah or any of the biblical prophets and so that's where that's where we think about the idea but in the New Testament the concept of prophet is is actually very important and what we're trying to, to splice out in the modern church is the difference between having a gift of prophecy, which all of us can have, uh, and the office of prophet. The office of uh, the office of prophet would be somebody that would uh, have that title on their on their business card, which is probably somebody you want might want to avoid. So if somebody ever gives you a, a business card and on that is Prophet Bob or Prophetess Julie, um, you just kind of have to be careful about people that, that call themselves prophets. But I do believe that there is an office, like a legitimate office of prophet, like there's a specific person. And I think that in the modern context, that quite possibly could be Jordan Peterson with what he is framing out how he is addressing the cultural issues and the themes of today. And even in the way that he's doing it, um, frankly, from a position of concern and care and love uh, versus just being a jerk. So, I mean, some people will think that he's a jerk because he's very forceful, but actually I think he's very caring and, and he does want the best for people and he wants the best for society. And I think that what he has to say is important for the church. So uh, we are on today. Today we're on rule number 10, and that is to be precise in your speech. Like all of his other titles, they seem kind of self-descriptive and straightforward. But this chapter was probably one of the harder ones for me to get my head around and actually to understand what he was saying. And so if you're reading the book or if you're listening along with the book and you get into chapter 10 and you start to lose it because he's talking about some very um, deep, abstract themes, but halfway through, he brings it together in some very practical application and it just it's just going to click. Um, but again, it seems like a simple title. The beginning of the chapter is really hard to get your head around. So uh, let me let me just talk about the title of it because this is something that I I'm familiar with because I I speak for a living. So I'm speaking to you right now. I speak almost every Sunday. I officiate weddings. I do public speaking. I lead different types of groups 
what have you. And so over the years, I have learned that what comes out of my mouth is vitally important. And I have to be careful uh, on what I say and how I say it. I have to craft my language in a specific way that is going to resonate with people. The other thing that I've learned in the area of public speaking or communicating is that uh, what you say is actually vitally important. You have to be, you have, you have to splice every word and you know, think about what you say before you say it. You have to filter it. But an equally uh, important is not what you say. It is how you say it. And that one is even a tougher thing. And so one of them is dealing with one form of, of communication is dealing with, you know, what, what comes out of your mouth verbally. Uh, the other is a nonverbal form of communication. It is how you say it. Uh, and they have to work together. And I believe that that's what this, what this chapter is about. I've learned over the years that when I am, when I have maybe like a biblical principle to communicate and like in my mind, I understand what needs to be communicated and I understand that what I am saying, first of all, is biblical and it is true. And like even to this day, um, I am blown away, flabbergasted by how many times I get misunderstood or somebody hears something or even in the way that I have communicated something, it, it has triggered somebody and they have a negative or, or a positive reaction. But the point is, is that it wasn't what I was trying to communicate. Like this has happened to me last week. I'm trying to communicate a very important principle. I said it one way. I made an exception, but all the individual heard in their mind is that they just heard the exception. They didn't even hear the heart of what I was trying to communicate. And, and they actually applied the exact opposite. And so this is like being precise and what we say and how we speak is it's, it's important. Um, and, what people hear and how they hear it, like we have to have that um, in our mind that okay, if I if I say it this way, how the, how is so and so going to take it, and um, and could they take it the wrong way? So, in a sense, this chapter is about framing your speech. It's about articulation. It's about communicating. Uh, truth, like your the truth that you want to communicate with the the message that you want to get out. In that sense, that's kind of what this this chapter is about. But it turns out it's about so much more than just being precise in your communication and making sure that your message gets across. He starts off probably where he begins to lose me is that he starts off talking about um, um, objects. So he talks about how we. Uh, how we view and, and perceive and value specific objects. 
Uh, ironically, I was just talking to Joel, who's our audio guy here, and he was talking about how we have like this really cool old projector in storage, and like, should we junk this thing, like, or should we try and sell it? Like, it's cool, it's old, it has all these weird old inputs that we probably don't even have wires for anymore. And like, what what are we gonna do with this? You know, this this dinosaur, and that is like that is so true. Like, I've got I have a really cool piece of technology called a remarkable sitting on my on this table right here which i i love i use it's, it's changed my life it's an incredible little piece of technology but the truth of the matter is it's going to be obsolete in five years or less and we could probably say that about all of our phones uh peterson uses the illustration of laptops how how you have this laptop that's going to it's just going to be obsolete and we're we're looking at this i mean like this is going to be a, a a reality that our technology is going to be outdated very, very fast, probably faster than we anticipated. Um, like if we if we look back in the you know the old days, and we you know we used to have phones that we'd plug into the wall, and then we have to roto dial them, or we've had you know old calculators that were the size of you know a refrigerator. I mean, it's just the technology has advanced so much. Now the thing is with the objects. Which you know, Joel and I are have, again having the conversation about the projector. Is it worth anything? The answer is probably no. We'd probably have to pay somebody to haul it away. Like we don't know. It's probably worthless. At least, like we don't find any value to it. It's been sitting in storage for God knows how long, and we haven't valued it for that long. And yet, he says that it probably still works. Like we might need to have to change a bulb out, but it probably still can perform its function the way that it did. Uh, you know, your 1990s laptop that's in the bottom of your closet, like if you're able to, to plug it in, like if the battery still works, um, you could probably still use it for what it was created for, which would be some type of a, you know, word processing at another level or whatever. You use Microsoft Word or something like that. Like it still works. It's still valuable it, or it still has a function, but it's not valuable. Why? Um, yeah, it's a technology thing, but it's also, uh, it also falls into an area of how we perceive its value. So this chapter that, that Peterson frames out on being precise in your speech uh, ironically, is more about perception than it is about on what and how you say it. Okay, what you say is important. How you say it is equally important, but how it is perceived is truth. And so, um, I just don't perceive you know some of this old technology as it's just like I don't I don't want it. I don't need it. Um, he. He uses an illustration of just like think about your outdated laptop as as a leaf on a tree that's eventually going to fall off. It 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 has it's had a purpose, but now it's over. And again, it's like how do we perceive the value of that thing? Okay, abstract concepts on how we relate to objects. He pushes it into the idea on how we relate to people, how, how we perceive people. Um, so let's, I'll tell you what, I'll just go ahead and ask you a question on, on how do you perceive, how do you perceive the world? How do you 
Okay, we'll just go with you. We'll just pick on your boss. How do you perceive your boss? Is he a taskmaster? Is he a jerk? Uh, is he kind of a comrade? Is he a pushover? Like, how do you how do you perceive your boss in the work environment? Think about it for a sec. Now, what do you think the truth of it is? Now, just think about maybe you know push it into the area of imagination. Imagine what he what he's like at home. Do you think he's the same person at home that he is in the workspace? Um, is he does he ever lighten up? Does he have fun? Um, so do you think that how you perceive him at work is the truth of who he is all the time? Maybe yes, maybe no. We're not, we're not quite sure. Um, how you, how do you perceive, uh, trauma, a difficult time? So let's just say everything's hunky dory. You're going around, you know, you're going on with life and everything's great. You're kind of on autopilot. You have no major expectations. You feel like nothing really wrong is going to happen. Um, and, you know, you pull out a Del Taco and somebody smashes into your car. Your car's totaled. Um, you know, your neck is nearly broken. You've busted your spleen. Like your whole, like within an instant, your whole life just begins to fall apart because you found yourself caught up in a, in the experience of instant chaos. And so from one moment you go from life being like, you know, hunky dory, like it's just, it's just perfect. You're like, you're living your best life now. And then the very next, within a split second, you go into complete chaos and now all of a sudden the way that you perceive the world within a moment has drastically changed. Um, the world is constant, but how we perceive it is important. So now you perceive the world as a dark, chaotic space because you're going through a dark, chaotic moment. And that is what he's getting into the heart of. Now, how we relate to objects, how we relate to situations, and... This is what brought it home for me in this chapter is that he talks about how we perceive people and even relationships. So I hope you've hung on this long because now you really need to pay attention because how do you perceive your relationships? He uses an illustration of a marriage. And why I like, I don't like this illustration, but I can identify with this illustration because I have uh, counseled numerous couples through this same exact scenario. The scenario goes like this. There is a married couple. They've got a couple of kids. They have a two-car garage. Um, uh, dad is a, you know, he's a professional uh, white-collar middle manager, and he's providing for his family. Uh, mom had a career that she sacrificed so that she could stay home with the kids. Uh, maybe someday she'll return to her career uh, when the kids are all grown up. This is, this is a very common situation that takes place in our modern culture and society. Now, on more than one occasion in this almost very specific scenario, 
uh, somebody has an affair. Now, I'm not saying it happens to every single relationship, but it's happened to a number that I've had to deal with. And it is like that trauma of a car wreck. You know, one day life is fine, and then the next you find out that your spouse has been cheating on you. And that, it, you know, it, it then the whole, you know, the whole foundation, your rock has been taken out from underneath of you. Now you, you can, you know, now you're on sand. Uh, you thought you're having a great time skating through life. And little did you know you were skating on thin ice and you have just now plunged into this cold, dark reality that you're, that that what you thought was the perfect little Christian life is now just a complete horror show and it's just tragic. So again, on more than one occasion, you know, I've had these situations end up in my office or I've had to go over to people's houses and try and, you know, save a marriage or trying to, you know, have a conversation and to, to put the family back together or triage this thing. And it's just, one of the worst things to do when 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 you're in ministry is trying to walk uh, a couple through an infidelity of some sort. And after the initial shock of it all, um, the ones that will push in and either seek professional counseling, pastoral counseling, uh, you know, when the individual who had the affair, let's just pick on the guy. So the, the guy had the affair. Um, when the guy has the affair and he knows that he's effed up and he's, he wants to save the marriage. He wants to do whatever it could take, whatever it takes to, um, keep his family together. You know, he's going to eat crow. He's going to ask for forgiveness. He's going to spend month upon month on the couch and he's willing to pay that price for his his adultery um you know you you spend some time in counseling you have to you you've got to go not just in pastoral counseling but in a situation like that you've got to go to professional therapy and what begins to come to the surface over time is the reasons why the affair happened um, a wise person once told me that uh, affairs just don't happen overnight. It is an accumulation of micro dysfunctions that have added up over time. Now, of course, there's always some idiot that has no control over his impulses and he's just, you know, has no moral compass and that's what he does. But that's the exception. Most people that have affairs, it just didn't happen because they slipped up and they they fell prey to a little temptation. Uh, most affairs that take place happen over time and again over an accumulation of dysfunction, of micro dysfunctions. A little bit here, you know, a little lack of communication here, um, a little being disconnected there. Um, when you're first married, you know, your sex life is great. After you have a couple of kids, then, you know, it just, you know, it just kind of goes down, down, down. And that 
you know, like one of the, it's not just about sex that leads, you know, to the lack of sex that leads to, um, an infidelity or a partner stepping out. It's also the disconnect of, uh, of an emotional connection. And so he uses this illustration and it's brutal because, uh, although Peterson won't make an excuse for somebody's individual behavior on being unfaithful, but he wants to point out what led to it in that um, there's a monster under the bed or there is an issue that is not being addressed. So in this situation, he's going to say, well, the, the, the sex life that was once vibrant and that, that is now dead and you know the husband looked for fulfillment in a different area with a different person um it's something that took a little time and a little bit of fostering to happen and so yeah it's the husband's fault for being unfaithful but it is also ready this is going to be tough and it's probably going to make some of you mad but it's also the wife's fault um for not being faithful in meeting the needs of her husband. I'm not making an excuse for the guy at all, but this is why we need to be precise in our, in our speech. There's a different, there's a couple of different uh, scenarios that he also presents. He's, he says that, okay, so why, uh, why, Okay, we won't even we'll, we'll say sex, but we'll also just say communication and um, intellectual, emotional connection to the spouse. So the wife has distanced herself, not just physically, but emotionally and socially from her husband. When they were dating, they used to go hiking all the time. Now that they're married and, you know, bored they don't they don't do that shared activity anymore and that's what the husband misses so why did why did the why did the wife quit going um you know on shared activities why did she quit why did she quit going boating with with her husband why did she quit going fishing with her husband why did she quit going hiking with her husband uh like we don't know but Peterson will present, he presents some ideas. Well, maybe, just maybe, she has issues with men. Maybe she's resentful for men, towards men. Uh, maybe she doesn't even like men. Maybe she had a bad relationship with her father that is now getting projected onto her husband. And so... Once we begin to look at, okay, so this is just, hopefully you're getting this. And, and again, I know from experience that this is true. It's not just somebody having an affair. Underneath the covers, so to speak, there's a lot more going on. There is, you know, there's some psychological stuff. There's some emotional stuff. There could be some um, past abuse that that has weaved its way and has got into the relationship. Um, and... 
Peterson will call it the monster under the bed or the dragon that needs to be slain. And we have been told um, for the longest time that dragons don't exist. Um, and when we say that, oh, there is no problem in our in our relationships, everything is fine, everything is hunky-dory, basically what we're saying is that the, the dragons don't exist. So Peterson's main point in being precise in in what we say, being being precise in what we speak, is not just being clear in what you communicate or even on how you communicate. It is the perception of what is reality and speaking uh, life into or life to that perception. So um, we perceive that everything is okay, but that perception, you know, talking about the back to the marriage relationship that's dysfunctional, we perceive that everything is okay, but the truth is it needs to be seen as unhealthy. So we have to be precise in our speech and framing out what is true so that we can perceive what is going on in the light. So when you're precise in your speech uh, to the, for the marriage illustration, you would have to say, I am not happy with this relationship. You need to say that before you have an affair. You need to vocalize it. You need to have a fight. You need to work it out. Um, you need to slay that dragon. That's 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 the hard part. Um, being precise in your speech means that despite the response or despite the backlash, you need to be honest about what your needs are and you need to be honest about what your expectations are, like what your dreams are for the future. And it needs to be talked about a lot so that uh, the perception of the relationship literally changes so that you see what is true and not what is projected. And I, don't, I could probably just wrap it up right there on that idea. So again, rule number 10, being precise in what you in what you speak is literally speaking into situations so that the perception visually changes and how you how you view it so this applies to relationships it it, it applies to chaos in every situation so maybe your marriage isn't going to fall apart but maybe you got uh, you know you got to go to the doctor because you've got something going on and your imagination is going to go to every worst possible scenario. Um, but you need to make sure that your doctor is precise with his diagnosis. So you know exactly what needs to be addressed instead of imagining a million different things and bringing life to those million different things. So chaos needs to be honestly confronted and, Chaos needs to be addressed in order to addressed and spoken to in order to have victory over certain areas of our lives. So um, that was a tough one. I know, uh, kind of a bit of a negative one, but I want to I want to encourage you. I hope it gives you power to to run 
towards problems instead of avoiding them, uh, instead of burying, you know, something that needs to be talked about, that you have the courage to talk about it, um, whatever that situation is, whatever, whatever is eating at you. Because if you don't, you know, in a, in a, in a personal relationship, if you don't address it, um, then it, then bitterness will seep in. And if bitterness is not cut off at the root, then it turns into contempt. And once somebody, once something or someone is held in contempt, then it's just a poison that I don't know if there is a cure for. So you're either going to put up with it and be miserable and make yourself sick or something bad's going to happen. But we have to be free from from bitterness so that it doesn't doesn't turn in into contempt. Um in your everyday life, let's just say, you know, let's just say it's a work environment and you find yourself a, in a in a unhealthy work environment. Now of course you need to be able to pay your bills. Everybody needs a job. Work is important. We need to make sure that we're not making up excuses so that we don't do our job because laziness is the is the devil's workshop. And so that's not, I'm not talking about that, but what I am talking about is that if there is uh, so much chaos um, and if you're not making your needs met known at work, then, then you're going to, you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're going to be like, you know, just take this job and shove it. I've been in that situation myself where it's just like, um, I don't like it. I'm not, feel like I'm being heard. I'm not voicing my opinions and I hate my stinking job that eventually turned into contempt. And that whole thing just blew apart. And I found myself in a very bad situation because, um, I wasn't being precise in my speech. So I want to encourage you all just to be a little brave, be crystal clear and be precise in your speech till next time. Thanks for watching, listening to the art of faith podcast.